Hey, everybody. Okay, we're going to read the Bible um, from James. So I've just lost my place. Okay, so this is James chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Okay, that's James chapter 1, 12 to 18. All right. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruit of all his creatures. Let's just pray. Father, I just pray that you'll bring those words to our heart and teach us, Lord, what um, you would have us know this morning. I pray to inspire Jason, and I pray that you'll speak to us, and by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see your truth. Amen. Thank you, Philip. We on? We're on. Good morning. morning. It's cold. (laughs) Tell my kids this morning that I'm nervous, but I'm not sure if it's nerves or it's just, it's wet and it's cold out. And I didn't know you could wear a jacket in church. So when I saw Brian get up here and then I saw Philip get up here, I thought, you know, that's what I need. I need to get a jacket. Well, hey, it's, it's good to see you here today. I want to talk uh, just a couple of family moments, and by family moments, what I mean is if you're visiting, we're glad you're here, uh, but I want to just kind of talk to some of you that are real committed to Bergen Park and what God is doing here, and, and a little bit about community. I, I know a number of you have signed up to get connected to growth groups, right? Have some of you signed up? And I know some of you are waiting for that opportunity, and I want to speak into that a little bit. Because I know Terry is incredibly committed to getting each one of you plugged into a place of community and service where you can grow, get in the Word together, pray and kind of disciple and have that opportunity to grow in relationship with each other. Well, one of the things we're, we're in the works of doing is training up new leaders. And so in the process of training new leaders... Uh, it's sometimes a challenge to get everyone connected, and so let me say, um, just bear with us a little bit as we kind of train some leaders. We're going to put um, a set out a date in January to really get us connected and kind of push in that direction. So I would encourage you, if you're not a part of a growth group, uh, be praying in that direction, be considering that, and then also, here's the big sell, if God would call you to lead. Now, what do you need to be to be a leader? Well, you need to be faithful, available, and teachable. If you've got Christ in your heart and you've received him, then that means you've got the Holy Spirit. And with the Spirit, we have the Word of God. And if you're faithful, available, and teachable, then God's going to use you to impact the lives of others. And there's no greater gift, I'll tell you, there's no greater gift than to invest your life into someone else's life and to see that person become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And so consider that. You with me? Consider that. 
Well, hey, I'm excited to jump back into the book of James today. If you want to grab your Bible, you can open there. We're in James chapter 1. And what we've been looking at, and what James has been taking us through, is something I think I'm sure everyone in this room has experienced. You've gone through it. Maybe you're in it right now. Maybe it's something you just stepped out of. And what James describes in chapter 1 that God wants to use to stir our faith and our love for God is he talks about the trials of life. And he says, in life, you're going to experience trials. So don't be surprised. Actually, in 1 Peter, Peter says, don't be surprised. You ready for this? At the painful trials that have come upon you as though something strange is happening to you. Rather, what the Bible teaches that is in all of life, we will experience trials. We'll go through suffering. But there's two reasons why trials are really painful. You ready? The first, James says, is because we lack wisdom. So he says, if any of us lack wisdom, we need to ask God. And so when we're walking through a trial, we need wisdom. Now, why do you need wisdom in trials? Because I don't know, if you're anything like me, you may make assumptions about what's happening. You may think to yourself, hey, maybe I brought this on myself. Maybe God's angry with me. He doesn't love me. And you start to see the events in life in a way that can be very spiritually damaging to the way you see yourself or really the way you see others and then in the end to the way you see God. And so James says what we need in the midst of trials is wisdom. Now, last week, he gave us a second reason why, 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 why trials are painful. And he said, one of the reasons that trials are painful, and if you turn there in James chapter 1, he says, because sometimes in verses 9, 10, and 11, he says that we can set our hearts on things like the grass. You see that in verse 11 or 10? Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also the rich will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. One of the things that makes trials incredibly painful is when you set your heart on something that fades. Because when you set your heart on something that fades and then a trial comes in, and what it does is it jeopardizes that thing that's become the core of your identity. And if the core of your identity is something that slips away, if it can fade, if it can be gone within just the rising of the sun, then what he's saying is that causes incredible pain. And so instead of setting our heart on things that fade, in verse 12 he's going to say, let us set our heart on a crown that lasts. Not one that fades, but rather what God is doing in our trials is he's perfecting us. He's strengthening us. And in the end, what he wants to strengthen is the affections of the heart. What God wants to strengthen in us as we go through hardships is to test and ask the question, you ready? Bergen Park Church, what do you love? What is your first love? What is your primary love? And then what is the love that shows up when hardship comes? Now we ask that question today, what is your favorite comfort food? I'll tell you, when trials come, there's nothing like a gallon of rocky road to set your problems away. Cherry Garcia isn't bad either. That's not bad. Because see, when trials come, some, what we're looking for is we're looking for comfort. We're looking for a place 
to escape, something to go to where I can escape the pain of what's taking place, maybe even erase it from my mind. And what James is going to start asking is, as we're going through trials, what is your heart running towards? Because see, as we start jumping into the passage today in verse 13, it seems as if he's transitioning to a very different subject, because if you look in verses 2 through 12, the subject is trials. But in verse 13... He transitions to a different subject, and he starts talking about temptation. And you may think that the two are not connected, that he's really beginning a new segment. But what's interesting, and here's a a great reason to pick up this app, and I think I mentioned it last week. Some of you may have gotten it. It's called the Blue Letter Bible. If you pick up the Blue Letter Bible, you can get that on your Android and get it on your iPhone. But you pick that up, and if you look to James chapter 1, what you're going to discover is when you click... Uh, just touch on one of the verses, verse 2. There's going to be this little interlinear. I'm teaching you a little bit about uh, Greek and Greek background and why it's so beneficial. But if you click on this little interlinear, you don't have to know Greek. But what it'll do is it'll take all the Greek words in the verse and it'll put it right alongside the English equivalent. And here's what you're going to discover and why that's so important. Because in verse 2 and verse 13... The same Greek word that's translated in verse 2 as trials is translated in verse 13 as temptation. Now, why is it in different forms in our English Bible? Because it's based on the context. See, in verse 2 through 12, what he's talking about is when trials come, they test us. But see, God doesn't use trials to tempt us. Rather, the reason that trials tempt us is because of what's in here. The reason that trials tempt us is because of the desires of the heart. And what James is going to show us is that in every trial, there is a temptation. Though God wants to use trials to test us, to strengthen us, to refine us, what can often happen is in the midst of pain, your desires start to be revealed. And it can either drive you towards God or it can actually drive you away from God. And the blessing of a trial is this. You have the opportunity to examine the desires of the heart. To really say to yourself, what is it that I want in life? What am I after? And then in an amazing way, in God's mercy and grace, to invite God to come in and then to readjust the desires of the heart so that they're not set on things that fade. They're not set on things that trials will in the end come in and destroy, but rather our hearts are set on God. And on Jesus Christ, and because of that, the one thing that trials will do when your heart is set on God is they will strengthen you and and cause you to become more and more like the thing that you most love. And if what you most love is God, what trials will do is cause you to become more and more in tandem with the heart of God. So you ready? You want to jump in? Let me pray for us. Father, I just confess uh, this morning, there's so many thoughts that are, that are running through my head, and I'm cold. But Lord, um, you want to teach us. And so Lord, this morning, would we not set our hearts on the things of man, but the things of God, and would you use your word uh, to show us who you are, and in showing us who you are, Father, to remind us that we can trust you. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So within every trial is a temptation. So again, look at verse 12. 
He said, blessed is the man, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now, if you look down again in verse 15, when he starts talking about temptation, in verse 12, he says that trials can lead us to life. Or in verse, verse 15, he says, Then desire, when it as conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So he's making a comparison. He's saying trials can either lead us to life or they can tempt us and lead us to death. The one thing a trial can't do is to cause you to remain the same. When you go through hardships, the one thing that hardships will not do is cause you to remain the same. They're going to move you either in the direction towards God and towards life, or it's going to reveal the desires of the heart, and it's going to move you towards death. It's either in verse 4, if you look back in verse 4, going to lead you towards perfection, being complete, lacking in nothing, or it's going to lead you towards verse 8, where he says he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That when trials come in, they either move you towards God or they move you away from God. But trials always move you towards the thing that your heart most desires. As Jesus says, for where the treasure is, there's your heart going to follow. Or where the heart is, there your treasure is going to follow. And so when you find yourself in a trial, your heart is going to move towards something. Now, we've all seen this. We've all seen this in the lives of people we love, maybe family members. It could be individuals in this church. Somebody goes through a trial, and then right after that, there's another person that goes through a very similar experience, almost identical. Let's say they both lost their job. Now, one person goes through that, and in walking through it, it's painful, it's difficult. You can see the struggle that they're walking through as they start to lose maybe hope. They start to lose finances. Things start to change. And yet, as, as they walk through it, they don't become embittered or angry. They don't become self-centered. Rather, what you discover is they start to become very, very God-centered. And they become patient and humble. As they walk through this trial, they actually become sweeter, more rich, and in some ways more useful to us, having gone through the trial. And then someone else goes through a very similar experience. And the outcome is different. They lose their job. They start going through financial struggles but the outcome isn't a sweetness, rather it's, it's an anger, right? It's a bitterness. Instead of becoming more useful, instead of serving in the church, rather maybe they back away from the church, they step away from the growth group, they stop reading the Bible, they stop turning to God. Very, very similar experience, but one person moves towards life. The other person is moving more and more towards, towards death. One person is becoming mature and complete, the other person is revealing a double-mindedness. They're not sure what they want. And instead of taking them towards God, rather it's taking them maybe towards what their heart most desires. And because of that, God has no opportunity to work in that person's life. You know, that's not just a story. Rather, that's our story. And if I had to be honest, as a pastor, that's my story. You know, ministry... Being a pastor is a trial. Standing in front of you today is a trial. One of my favorite passages is in uh, Galatians chapter 1. And Paul says, 
Are you now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or are you still trying to please men? Listen, Jason, if you're still trying to please men, you are not a servant of Christ. What's he saying? You know, I can get up here and I can fix my heart on your affections. I'd love for you to think, what a great pastor, what a good communicator, what a decent guy. Hopefully what a good husband, loves his wife, takes care of his kids. But see, if I set my heart on your affections, though I may even get those affections, and let's say things go great and the church multiplies and grows, what James is saying is in the end, setting my heart on your affections will always lead to death. Because here's what I know about the affections of a church. Sometimes they're like the wave of the sea. One minute things are good and the next it's gone. And if my heart gets attached to your affections, when those affections are gone, you know what happens to my ministry in life? It tanks. And you look at that pastor and you say, wow, he was so committed to Christ, wasn't he? How could he fall into such temptation? Well, it's because of what the heart desires. And in ministry, it's very easy to set your heart on the affections of others. Instead of saying, rather than turning to the affections of others, God, I'm going to turn to your affections. I'm not going to do necessarily what people want me to do or even want to hear. Rather, Father, I want to do what stirs your heart. I want to do what causes you to be glorified and honored through my life. Father, I want to set my affections on your affections. I want to set my heart on your heart. You know, sometimes when you do that, you know what happens? When you stand for Christ in a community, you know what happens is sometimes people don't care for you as much. They may say you're a little strange. Maybe the way you live your life, the things that you pursue. You could find that setting your heart on the affections of Christ actually wins you rejection from others. And it can either take you towards life or towards death. And see, that's, that's ministry. Now, for me, I'll tell you, here's my struggle. And, and I'm, I'm sharing this as a, as a way of kind of opening my life story as a pastor over the last 25 years. As James is hopefully applying this passage to your life, I want to kind of show you how he's applied it to mine. You know, as a young pastor, I thought, I thought my job was to be Jesus for the church. I heard that sermon, right? Have you heard that sermon? You know, go out there and just be Jesus in Evergreen. Go out there and be Jesus in the place that you work. Well, I thought my job was to be Jesus. But here's what I ran into. I ran into criticism, which led to cowardice, which in the end led to comparison and finally led to compromise. Criticism that leads to cowardice that in the end leads to compromise. Now see, what happened is I thought my job was to be Jesus. Well, how good was Jesus? <laughs> he was perfect. Well, if you think your role in Evergreen is to be perfect, what happens when somebody criticizes? When someone says you're not perfect? What happens when somebody starts pointing out your very, very obvious imperfections? Well, what, what happens is you start to lose your identity. You start to say, well, I'm, I'm not doing it well enough, so what I would do as a young man is I'd try harder. All right, uh, that, that sermon bombed. 
I guess I'm going to get up earlier on Monday. I'm going to get up on Tuesday. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to study hard. I'm going to listen to better preachers. I'm going to read better books. I'm going to tell people, hey, help me to, to be a better pastor. Criticism, what it did is it drove me towards perfection. And perfection, in the end, drove me towards cowardice. Now, there's two kinds of cowardice. There's cowardice where you're afraid of man. But there's also a, a kind of subtle cowardice where you're afraid to admit when you fail. You're afraid to tell to a group of elders, I'm struggling, I'm having difficulties. Well, that was my story. See, I thought my job was to be perfect. I thought my job was to be Jesus for the church. And because of that, it led to this internal cowardice where I didn't admit that I was, I was struggling. I didn't admit that I had doubts. Doubts that I should even be a pastor or that God maybe called the wrong guy or maybe I didn't even hear his voice correctly. And so that sense of cowardice and that criticism began to erode my identity and you know what comes next. It's compromise. Because now your heart's looking for something and saying, who am I? Where can I find comfort? You may find it in ice cream in the beginning, but over time you look to pleasure you look to sin, and what looked to be such a promising ministry could have easily resulted in death if it wasn't for this verse. And if you go to John chapter 15, I realize that my job in church, our job is not to be Jesus. Rather, listen to, to how Jesus describes the work that he wants to do in us. John chapter 15, verse 5. And there Jesus said, I am the vine, John 15, 5, and you are the branches. Jason, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. See, what does God desire of us? God does not desire that you be Jesus. Rather, he wants Jesus to be Jesus in you so that Jesus can be Jesus through you. Let me say that again. God doesn't want you to be perfect. Rather, he wants you to be committed, which means to surrender every area of my life under the authority of Jesus so that Jesus can be Jesus in me. And listen, if Jesus is Jesus being in you, Jesus will be Jesus through you. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul likes to say God loves to show up in weakness. And you know what life gives you a lot of? Weakness. Doesn't it? You get married, what do you find? You find weakness. You have kids, and those kids go through challenges, and you want them to be successful. And it's almost like your heart is now external to your body for the rest of your life, because now there's this human being whose happiness is now your happiness, and it's so easy to get wrapped up in that. What is that called? It's, it's weakness. Life provides opportunities of weakness. But if your goal is just to be perfect and have things together, you know what you'll never experience is the power of Christ causing you to become strong. Because see, in our weakness, we have the opportunity to admit to the Father, Father, I need your strength. And the only way the community of Evergreen is going to know the power of Jesus Christ is not by me having the perfect home and the perfect family and the perfect kids and the right income and the right car and everything looking good. No, the way that Evergreen is going to come to know the power of Jesus Christ is for me to honestly and humbly walk this life 
in surrender and devotion to God. So that others may say to me in the midst of my weakness, how do you make it through? How are you overcoming? And I can say, it's the power of Christ that dwells in me. Church, you see what James is trying to get to? As we look at verse 13, he's saying when trials come, they either lead you to be refined and strengthened, they lead you to become sweeter and deeper, or in verse 13, it leads to temptation. Now, why do trials lead us to temptation? We'll jump down to verse 13. And James says, when you're tempted, be, be careful. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God uses trials to test us, not to tempt us. Now, here's what happens. And, and let me use this, this picture. You know, my kids, they're in fourth grade and seventh grade, right? Yeah. Okay. I forget that. I also forget how old I am, so don't ask. <laughs> my kids are in fourth grade and seventh grade. Now, when they, let's say one of them comes home, and they're disappointed because they failed the math test. Now, there's three ways we can go in that conversation. We can blame the teacher. Sorry, teachers, I know it happens. They can blame the test, or they can look within themselves. Now, what James is saying in verse 13 is don't blame the teacher. God cannot be tempted by evil. And when trials come, though God can take it away, he doesn't allow it into your life to destroy you, but to strengthen you. So he's saying, don't blame the teacher. Well, what's the next place we can go? Let's blame the problem. God, if she was nice to me, I would be nice to her. If my boss was generous and kind, I would do my job well with integrity, but he's not. So I'm going to blame the test. It's the traffic that makes me nuts. That's why I come home and I'm not a servant in the home. I'm not generous with what I have. We look at life and we look at the test and we blame the math test instead of saying what's going on in the desires of my heart. So what is James saying here? When tempted, don't say that God's tempting you. Because see, God doesn't want to tempt you by evil. But why are we tempted? Bergen Park, why are we tempted? We're tempted when? Look what he, what he describes. We're tempted when? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. See, why do we do the things we do? It's a great question, isn't it? He's saying the reason we do the things we do is because that's what's in there. It's in our desire. Now, you can't. You can try, but you, you can blame the things you do on the circumstances around you. You can blame it on your spouse, on the kids. You can blame it on a whole source of things. And a lot of people today don't like this message. Because they want to look at your environment, your parenting. They want to look at how you grew up. They want to look at the structures around you. And they say the reason you're behaving the way you do is because everyone around you needs to change. And if everyone around you needs to change, everybody change, then everything would be okay. Well, you know where that puts you? If everyone needs to change around you, and it puts you in the place of God. Because, see, God is the one that doesn't need to change. But everything else changes. And sometimes we walk into our office... And we walk in our office as if we're God. You know, there's a great book called Leadership and Self-Deception. Have you read that? Great secular leadership 
resource, and it's about a parable of a manager. And this manager is walking into his office, and instead of recognizing, you know, maybe what needs to change is me, and maybe that what really needs to change is the way that I'm seeing people and the way I'm seeing problems, what he thinks when he gets there is, I've got it all together, and these people need to get on board with me. And so every solution that he has isn't about necessarily changing himself, it's about changing everyone else around him. And because of that, what happens is you fall into self-deception. Self-deception is, I'm okay. I've got the answers. Everyone else needs to change. Well, that's not just true of business and leadership. That's true of life with God. When trials come, when we find difficult people in our lives, it's very easy, James is saying, to be tempted to say, hey, it's their fault. If my wife would, then I wouldn't. If she only, then I would not need to. But what is he saying is the cause of our actions? He's saying it comes from our desires. Why do trials lead to temptation? Because, see, all trials do is they stir up the desires that are already in us. And they expose the affections of the heart. So what do we need to do? Well, what James does, and it's incredibly healthy for us, is he shows us the process of trials. That once that desire begins to stir, notice how he describes it. But each one, verse 14, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. So notice the language, lured, enticed. You know what that, the, that is the language of? Seduction. Someone is lured and enticed. Now, actually, if you're a fisherman, it's the language of fishing. You throw out a lure that will entice a fish to do what? Turn on the desire. Now, is it the lure's fault? Or is it the fish that's motivated by a desire? It's the fish. He sees what he wants, and he's, he's brought in. But notice, once you're lured and enticed, that's not... The end, it's not just to get you seduced. Rather, he says the next step is conception. Now, he's taking that language a little further than we want to go. But once you're enticed, it leads to conception. And then notice, he says, after conception comes a child. It gives birth. And eventually that child, you know, it takes time, but that child's going to grow up. And that child, which is called sin, gives birth to death. Now, here, here's what's, what's so insightful about what James is describing. Often, the things in your life that are sin, uh, they're pretty insignificant. I mean, that little temper and anger, lust, you know, lingering the eye in a few places. Well, if they didn't wear that, then I wouldn't look. I know you've said it. Right. What, what it's, it seems insignificant. But what he's saying is when that desire is stirred and it starts to conceive, meaning you give life to it, there is actions that are birthed out of your life. And over time, when those actions are allowed to continue and those desires are allowed to fester, in the end, it leads to death. Now, why would he use the word death? Because there is one who came to give you life, but there's an adversary who wants to bring death. There's an adversary that Jesus calls the accuser and his desires to kill, to steal, and destroy. 
but God's desire is to give you life. And in the midst of those temptations that can either lead you to life or it can lead you to death. And it's called the law of diminishing returns. Have you been there? That income isn't enough. I just want to make more. And there's nothing wrong with making more if it's not the desire, the primary affection of your heart. If it does, you know what it does? You know what overworking produces? It produces divorce. Now, I did it for my wife. Did you? What happens with children? It it leads to a fractured home. This, This good desire, and it's a good desire to work hard, to have a great career, to have an influence, to build a business. God has designed us with that creativity and passion and motivation. But when it becomes an ultimate desire of the heart, this very, very good thing can begin to conceive, give birth, and eventually it leads to to death. Now here's what's so unique, and, and I hate to get into Greek words, but sometimes they're really important. This word desire, if you look in the Greek, is this word epithumia. Epi means to be over or against. Now thumia, you can kind of hear the word, it's thermal. It's heat. Well, what is the desire he's talking about? Because some of your translations may say lust. Well, that's a bad translation. Because lust is all, that's about sex. And he's not talking about sexual desire. Rather, he's talking about the desires that come when your heart gets set on the wrong thing. Others will call it evil desires. But what the Greek word is, is called over-desire. And see, our problem with sin is not that our hearts necessarily get set on the wrong thing. I think what James is saying and what the rest of the New Testament is going to communicate is sin happens. It's okay, buddy. It gets better. Or daughter. It gets better. Bye. Sin happens when our heart gets set on a good thing, but that good thing becomes an ultimate thing. See, when, when our heart gets set on a good thing, it becomes an epi-desire. And anger turns to rage. Now, anger is a good thing. Anger will save you from a lot of bad decisions sometimes. Anger will keep you from, it'll help you to see life better. But if anger takes control, it can become over-anger, which becomes rage, hatred. And a good desire, like sex, can become an ultimate desire. There's nothing wrong with sex. It's a good thing that God's created. But when I say I have to have it, I must have it, and this is the way I have to experience it, what's happening is a good desire that God's given us to bring joy and pleasure in life has become an ultimate desire. And that ultimate desire, though it seems so insignificant in the beginning, over time gives birth, it conceives, and in the end it leads to death. See, the reason we sin is not just because we desire the wrong thing, Often it's because God has given you something that's incredibly good. But it's become an ultimate thing. And when it becomes an ultimate thing, you push God out, you get the the center of life, and you want everyone else to change around you. See, that leads to death. Because death, in the end, the greatest trial of all, is a trial where we do not know God. And we do not know that He is the one we turn to for life. See, what James is saying is, church, when we go through trials... Check the desire of your heart. Because listen to how he describes God as we conclude. James says, when you're tempted, realize 
Verse 16, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow. Of his own he has brought forth, we have been brought forth in us by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of all his creation. All, our, all of our hearts are searching for something that is good. You know, and the challenge for us today is not just simply the knowledge that God is good, but what James is describing here is to taste the goodness of God. See, how do we overcome the desires of the heart? Well, it's not just by saying no, though no is important. It's by the expulsive power of a new affection. How do you overcome the desires of the heart? What is James saying? He's saying there is one who is good. And there is one to whom all the gifts of life are coming down from the goodness of his heart. See, what he's describing is not just simply something we need to know. He's saying this is something we need to experience. That we need to walk in life in such a way that we attribute everything that God has given us to his goodness and not our greatness. To his grace and not to our glory. What he's describing, church, what what allows our hearts to break the affections that lead to death is the experience of the goodness of God. You know, and sometimes the reason we sin, not just because we're chasing the wrong things, sometimes the reason we sin is because we don't believe that God is good. And the place we need to start is to say, Father, forgive me that I think that what I'm pursuing is better than you. You know what that's called is repentance. And repentance leads to life because, see, when you admit to God that there's something in life, and it's okay to admit it to God. When you admit to God there's something in my life that I find that is more beautiful, more attractive, more desirable than you, you know what God begins to do? Is he begins to work on the desires of the heart and show you his goodness. And in showing you his goodness, you experience his goodness. And the old affections that the heart used to run to start to run towards God. And God gives you a new heart and a new passion. And you find that that passion leads to life. Church, when you are tempted, when you walk through trials, what is the goodness that you think will solve the challenges in life? I know I've run to a lot of things. In my youth, to sinful pleasures, in my middle age, whatever I am, to success, but will we allow God to use the trials of life to cause us to run to him and running to him to taste and see that the Lord is good? Let me pray for us. Father, you tell us that, Lord, you want us not just to know today the knowledge of your goodness, but you want to give us confidence that you're the Father of the heavenly lights. You don't change like shifting shadows. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And sometimes, Father, I know in, in my trial, I can get to a place where I can believe that you don't love me, you don't care for me. Lord, your heart isn't fickle. It's not like a teenage girl or a boy that runs from place to place based on what you get. Rather, Father, your heart is as secure towards us as the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and the power of the resurrection. And Lord, you long to turn our hearts towards you. So today, Father, I pray 
that as we, we gather here, we would confess to you the things in our heart that have become way too important for us. Maybe even relationships, good things. But right now, they're becoming ultimate things. And, and because of that, they're drawing our, our hearts towards worry, anxiety, fear. When what you desire, Lord, for us is worship, adoration, and confession today. We need you. Lord, show us your goodness. And help this community, Lord Jesus, to be the goodness of your hands, your feet, your voice, so that others would say, you know, God is good, and I see him in the people in this room. Father, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.